Today's podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Chapter American Academy of Pediatrics. The Ohio AAP promotes the health, safety, and well-being of children and adolescents so they may reach their full potential. We accomplish this by addressing the needs of children, their families, and their communities, and by supporting chapter members through advocacy, education, research, service, and improving the systems through which they deliver pediatric care. Hi, my name is Rupa Thakur. I'm a primary care pediatrician at the Cleveland Clinic and medical director for the Ohio AAP's Lead Free Ohio program. Uh, today, I'm here interviewing Dr. Nick Newman. Uh, Dr. Newman, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks very much. I am a um, faculty member at the University of Cincinnati, and I'm the director of the Pediatric Environmental Health and Lead Clinic at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Wonderful. So today we're talking a bit about lead. Can you tell us a little bit about what lead is and why it matters if children are exposed to lead? Yeah, thanks. So lead is basically naturally occurring. Like we don't like synthesize lead like a chemical, like we just dig it out of the ground. And um, it's not, there's not really that much lead in the earth, uh, although we've, but humans have spread it all over the earth starting about like about 8,000 years ago. So like when they do archeological studies, like they dig down to a certain layer and below that layer, there's just like no lead found at all. So before uh, humans started taking the lead out of the ground, like there really wasn't much around anywhere. But, you know, so that kind of speaks a little bit to the fact of like how it can be toxic to so many things because it wasn't part of the environment until a few thousand years ago. And it's, it's toxic to all kinds of like humans, obviously, but also to plants and other animals and even uh, bacteria are um, uh, sensitive to it. And we first discovered that it was really toxic about 2000 years ago or so. And um, that was from acute toxicity where people were getting sick, getting headaches, uh, personality changes, like passing out and uh, dying because they were melting down lead or um, other things. And even some of the ancient cultures, you know, like uh, the, uh, the Romans actually had rules about where you could have a, med a lead smelter and because they were afraid of the, the fumes. They didn't know exactly how it was toxic, but they saw that it, that it was. And um, the thing is, is that lead is toxic to organs all through the body. But in children, we're most concerned about how uh, lead impacts the development of the, of the brain. And um, because the, the, the brain is so complex and there's so many things going on and, it, and it's growing and changing during those first few years of life, it's really uniquely vulnerable to the effect of lead on its uh, future function. So it isn't that you're, the symptoms that you're having years later are due to the lead that you're getting like when you're like 12 years old, a lot of it is coming from when you were much younger. And so it affects kids often at this very crucial time in their lives. You kind of answered this already, but uh, why are children more vulnerable to lead than adults? Well, in part because children are growing and developing, they absorb a lot more lead from the environment that they may ingest as compared to an adult because um, their digestive system is trying to take in all kinds of other nutrients like 
lead or calcium or iron. And your body has a hard time telling the difference between those three, between lead, calcium, and iron. And um, so that if, if there is lead around, it's going to get absorbed like by accident, basically. Now, the, the other thing to think about is that like, you know, as we, you know, as pediatricians always say, children are not just little adults. And so, um, you know, they have some very specific qualities. And one of them is this like growth and, and, and development. And that's why they absorb so much. And the reason we think it's particularly important to neurodevelopment is that um, both uh, iron and calcium are used in the brain. And we always think of like iron in the blood, or we think of like uh, calcium in the bone. But, but the brain actually uses um, a fair amount of iron in enzymes in the mitochondria, which help uh, create energy. And we think that one of the, the effects that um, lead has is both gumming up that system, but also gumming up the, the, the ion channels in the, the bacteria, uh, in the mitochondria, because it thinks that the, the, um, the, the lead is the calcium that it normally would be moving back and forth. And then the other reason it's important is that um, since calcium is used for signaling in the brain, lead can substitute for that in certain circumstances. And it's some of the, the, the animal models and some of the like, lab models really suggest that, that, um, that calcium mechanism may be very important, but we, we don't know exactly what all the, the pieces are there. That's really fascinating. So it sounds like an area that, uh, for research in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so now that we know that children are more vulnerable to lead, what are the major sources of lead for children that we need to be aware of? So by far, the, the most important source is dust, lead contaminated dust. And you know, this is often dust that's measured indoors. So it comes from a whole bunch of different sources. So, um, and it, that's important because children spend probably about 90% of their time indoors. And so that may be lead dust that gets tracked in from the outside uh, from contaminated soil, or it may be from the house itself, like from um, house paint. Uh, and the, the main ultimate source of these things, like when you, when you really look at it, were the, the legacy use of um, lead-based house paint, which was phased out in 1978, and then leaded gasoline, which was phased out later. And it was phased out like in, well, it really was phased out. It was different stages. And, and in fact, the very last country just phased out uh, the use of leaded gasoline in uh, 2021. And uh, that was uh, Algeria. But what happens is uh, since lead is an element, it's not like a chemical that we synthesize or something. It's not like biodegradable. It sticks around and it, it continues to contaminate an area until you actually remove it. And so, um, you know, even though um, it, I talked about before, like we, even the ancient Greeks knew that lead and was toxic. And we knew that lead was toxic to children, like probably by the 19th or early 20th century, the, the, the United States didn't really start phasing out all this stuff until the, the 70s. And so, um, you know, leaded gasoline, the phase out started in 1975, but it wasn't completed for over 20 years. And so, um, 
we have a, and and because if you think about it like all those houses that were built like before you know in the 20s and the 30s um in the immediate like post-war era there was still a lot of lead paint and that's where a lot of housing was built particularly like in ohio about two-thirds of the housing was built in this kind of lead paint era so um People think of it as something that's in the past, but like it was in the past and it's still here. I understand that the state of Ohio requires children to be tested for lead. Is this true for all children or, or certain children? How do we know who to test? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, Ohio state law requires testing. So requires like with a big like capital letters, requires testing for one and two year olds who are either insured by Medicaid or live in a high-risk zip code. And they, they determine the high-risk zip code through um, a fairly complicated um, uh, of, uh, statistical analysis, but you don't have to do that to figure out who needs to be tested. You can, um, um, there's a list. Um, and then the law also requires that if children, um, haven't been tested previously and they're three to five years old. So let's say somehow they got missed at one and two or they just moved to Ohio when they were three or four years old. Um, and if they're insured by Medicaid or live in a high-risk zip code, they, they also need to be tested if they haven't been, been checked. Now, what, what's, um, um, what's kind of interesting is like, that's what the law says, but also if, if you read carefully in the recommendations, they also talk about, you know, it, it's certainly up to the clinician to test whenever they think that it's reasonable. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, and depending on what uh, health department you, you work with, some of the local health departments will recommend yearly testing until age six because uh, they have so many high risk, risk kids. So uh, the law requires uh, the one and two year olds um, who are in high-risk zip codes or who are insured by Medicaid and the, the kids who, who have gotten maybe missed, you know, by the time they're three to five. But the, you know, different health departments may recommend additional testing. Um, now, children uh, who uh, are less than six years old and entering foster care are also required to have lead testing. And despite all these recommendations and requirements, like 40% of high-risk children in Ohio aren't being tested. And so there's still a big gap of, of like finding these kids. And, and I think like one of the issues people are just like, oh, well, you know, um, lead's in the past or like, oh, well, lead's everywhere or whatever. But like, there's a lot more lead in certain places than there are in others. And the only way we can actually do something for these kids is to know whether they've, they've been exposed or not. That's so interesting. And we do see that a lot of people just don't have it on their radar that lead is an issue for them. I think a lot of this may be that people don't realize that where they're living um, contributes to their child's lead exposure. So you mentioned um, zip codes before, high-risk zip codes for lead exposure. How do we as clinicians know if a child is living in a high-risk zip code? Yeah, that's a good question because off the, you know, when, when, I mean, first of all, just even knowing the zip code that the child lives in is like one thing, right? And then knowing whether it's high risk. So the, the Ohio Department of Health uh, maintains a list of high risk zip codes, which is um, 
they have a document on their medical management document and it on the back basically it, it has a list of the zip codes but but if you but if you look um, um, overall like almost like 90 percent of the zip codes in ohio are considered high risk and the exceptions being relatively new suburban communities so like if you look at the at the map the, the, the high risk areas, are, you know, not unexpectedly are in the, the urban, you know, cities that are older. Um, but if you look at rural Ohio, most of rural Ohio is also included in this, these high risk zip codes. And I think people don't uh, think of that. And that, that's in part because, like, there's a lot of older housing there. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and then kids are not necessarily always at the place where they say they they live so like they may be visiting like grandma or grandpa or something and they're living in a house that's 150 years old even though the parents might be living in a, a let's say in some rural areas they might be living in a um, in a, a mobile home or something or a, you know, manufactured housing like that and so um if you don't if you're not thinking about this you may very easily um uh, miss it now the uh, the ohio um, AP website has an interactive map that you can actually put in the zip code and it'll tell you whether it's um, high risk or, or not. And to be honest, like if you're not sure, it probably is, you know, I mean, but um, there are definitely areas that are not. And if, because if you if you look at the map, like, you know, there, there are communities where literally like everything is is new. And uh, they, they are much uh, lower risk from uh, lead from uh, housing, but there are other other sources. So um, uh, the you know occupational, et cetera. And what happens after a lead result comes back? So um, the by law, uh, all all the lead levels of residents of Ohio must be reported to the Ohio uh, Department of Health. In fact, they get all of the heavy metal results and not just um, lead, but they, they also, um, and they don't just get ones that are flagged as quote abnormal or high, like they get every single uh, uh, number. And um, the, um, so right now um, for any lead level of five or above, there'll be some response from uh, public health. Now the CDC has changed the blood lead reference value and at, at the uh, the time that we're having this conversation, there's still um, there's still some um, uh, discussions within the Ohio Department of Health how that'll all be operationalized. So uh, there may be some changes to this, but um, basically all lead levels of five or higher, uh, uh, and that means that uh, there'll be a, a call from the intervention program to help me grow uh, to try to. Um, uh, get ahead of things like if children are, are experiencing some kind of developmental delay or there's other social stressors going on, they, they may be able to help with some of the case management. Now, a lead level of 10 or above will prompt a um, risk assessment at the home and uh, to try to find the source of the lead. And um, that goes beyond a, a, a questionnaire. Of you know, I've heard of of uh, lead risk assessments before. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that entails, or what a family should expect? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I think uh, it's a good question because I think a lot of people are a little bit uh, uh, 
you know, concerned about like people coming to the house, particularly like all oh, those COVID uh, times that we've been going through. Um, for, first of all, I'll just say that all the health departments have developed uh, like safety protocols around COVID to um, reduce uh, transmission. And luckily, public health actually knows a lot about preventing infectious disease. Um, now, during the lead risk assessment, they send a lead risk assessor over. So they're a licensed person who comes over. Typically, they're a sanitarian who's uh, connected with the health department. And what they do is they, they'll come to the home and they, they make observations. So they look and say, oh, okay, what's the condition of the paint? Where does the child spend their time? You know, if they find it from the parent that the child is you know, up in the attic a lot or the child is um, playing in the yard where there's some bare dirt or you know, any number of things. So they, they, they ask a lot of questions to try to figure out where do they need to focus their uh, attention. And they also have a portable device with them, which is an XRF machine, an X-ray fluorimeter, which um, allows them to directly measure the, the lead content of items uh, in the home. So typically, like they're measuring paint. So like they may go to a door frame and they're like, okay, well, um, they know the house is 100 years old, so there's probably lead paint. So they'll go to a door frame and they'll you know, click it. And it'll read out immediately what the lead content, if any, of the of the paint. And then um, what they um, will also do is, hey, let's say, if that's all intact, then they'll you know probably tell the family, okay, well you just need to know there is lead paint here, but it's not you know it's behind other layers of paint, so it's okay, but it could be a problem if it gets disturbed. Um, and then um, if there's areas where there's actually chipping or cracking paint, they'll also measure that directly. And then from that, they, they figure out where they need to do dust wipe samples. So they, they take, um, they have a little, um, it's like a little pad that they, they wipe, you know, just like you would wipe anything. And um, they, they collect uh, like a square foot area and they, um, uh, wipe it down and then they take those samples and they send those to the lab. Now the lab, it usually takes a few weeks to get all those results back. Um, and um, the, um, and then, but if the family is concerned about other sources of lead or during the history, let's say they're talking to the, um, the parent, but you know, I've seen this happen where they came into a house, they use the XRF machine and like nothing, there was no lead in anything. And then they continued talking to the family and they realized that one of the parents had a job where they would come home all dusty. And so they're like, okay, well, where do they come in? Where do they put their clothes? Like what happens when they come in the house? And so, you know, they directed um, like the dust wipes to like the front door or the laundry area. And, um, you know, I've had multiple cases where that was where the lead was. And then they found out that someone was bringing it into the house. And so, that's why it's really useful to have this two-stage, you know, part. You know, it's actually three stages, right? So the questions, the you know, the quick analyzer, direct read analyzer, and then um, the um, the dust wipe sample. And it's kind of like clinical medicine, like where we'll do stuff like point of care, like oh, okay, well we're going to check your blood sugar, and it's all crazy, and you're like oh, whoa, okay, well we better start doing something. But in the meantime, we're going to get a bunch of other tests and try to figure out like to define this problem better. But you know, if your blood sugar is 20, we gotta do something about it right now. Um, but we're also gonna do a whole bunch of other tests to find out like what's really going on. 
Now, if they do find lead hazards in the home, like, like construction related, the owner has 90 days to address the lead hazards uh, according to the, the law. And so, um, and that, that timer starts from the time that, the, that they like officially put the orders down. So like that's usually, you know, when uh, the report is, uh, is completed. Got it. So it sounds like with this, they like the owner actually gets almost like an action plan of things that they need to address. Um, as a physician, I love action items too. What is my role in this process as a, as a primary care pediatrician or a physician uh, doing lead testing on children? What is our role? Yeah, so, you know, our role is pretty complementary to public health, right? Because they need us to be testing, obviously. But also, a lot of what we do in caring for children is preventive. And so, you know, what we really want to do is actually prevent the kids from getting exposed to lead in the first place. Because we, you know, we've done a lot of research on this, and we haven't found that any amount of lead is safe. And we also have found that we're not able to really reverse any of the effects of lead. So, like, um, you know, so the ideal thing is that you want to prevent kids from being exposed. And, you know, in a, you know, and it almost seems like a cliche, you know, in a busy office, like, how do you cram all this stuff in? Because if you did all the anticipatory guidance you were supposed to do, you could spend like eight hours with one person, right? And so, um, you know, if you think about like targeting this ahead of time, you're like, okay, you have a young child. A lot of us, wherever we practice, we kind of know what the lay of the land is. Like, is this a, a really high risk area for, for lead? And if it is, we should incorporate that anticipatory guidance, probably starting at about six months of age, because we know starting a little bit around six months is when children's lead levels start going up, like when this, you know, the studies that have been done. And so, you know, even though we typically test it at a year, the research tells us that it's starting to build up before that. And um, so, you know, that would be the time before the kids are really uh, getting into everything and exploring the house to talk to parents about lead and older housing and providing dietary advice to make sure that children are consuming foods that are uh, you know, particularly ones rich in iron. I see very few children who are low in calcium, right? But, but low iron is by far the most common micronutrient deficiency. And um, we all know why, because children don't want to eat things that contain iron and so, or in a sufficient quantity. So, you know, they will eat something, but they won't be able to get enough in. And then, um, you know, while you're doing anticipatory guidance, like prep the families to have them realize that we're going to be testing your kid's blood level later. And, um, and once again, that would be at, you know, one and two years of age. Uh, for you know, kids who are designated high risk, which is insured by Medicaid or uh, live in high risk zip codes. And I, I think it's also worthwhile to kind of prep parents for like what the process is. You know, this is going to be, you know, uh, we, by law, we have to check it. By law, we have to turn it into the state. But the state has resources to both figure out where the lead is coming from, but also to try to help mitigate it. So like I didn't... Um, you know, talk about that. But I mean, we're lucky in Ohio that we have uh, money available to help uh, the owners of housing actually get the, the lead hazards um, addressed. 
The other thing that's also important is like our job doesn't end with just checking the lead at age one. If it comes back high, like we have to do something about it. And you know, there are uh, medical management recommendations that are, um, uh, that are outlined by ODH, but probably the most important things are that, um, that you keep the parents aware that even very tiny amounts of dust, which is where mostly it comes from, it can be bad. And uh, not that their child is sitting there just like eating like chunks of paint. Like this isn't, I mean, some kids are, but like most kids are not. And most of the exposure is, is fairly low level, but it's, it's, it's all um, bad. Great, so where can we go to learn more? If we need more resources, where can we go? So uh, the Ohio AP uh, worked with uh, the Ohio Department of Health uh, to create a resource website. And that's at uh, ohioap.org slash lead. And if you found this podcast, you probably can find your way over to that part of the Ohio AAP uh, website. I, I'd also say that, um, you know, particularly for kids where the lead levels are getting quite high, or uh, even if they're not like super high, if, if as a clinician, if you're concerned about like, what am I supposed to be doing? Like I've read that these guidelines have changed. I've read, so there's a couple of different places you can turn to. Um, one is the uh, poison control centers uh, who can help to answer some of these questions. Uh, but most of the kids are not, uh, shall we say, like acutely poisoned, like they're not like acutely sick from it. The other option is to call uh, the, one of the pediatric environmental health specialty units. And we have one at Cincinnati Children's. And um, our number is 513-803. 3688. And we have a couple of different ways uh, to uh, provide help. Um, and we've, uh, since this is part of my job, I've uh, field questions uh, quite a lot from clinicians who are wondering, like, should I be worried about this? Uh, what about chelation? When do I do that? And that, it's not really recommended that people do that unless you're used to doing it all the time, uh, because there can be some significant downsides to it. So I think as a physician, like what we need to think about is prevention and also preventing additional exposure. And uh, some of that is some pretty straightforward advice to, to parents about preventing their kids from, from getting exposed to lead. But I'm, um, the, the Pediatric Environmental Specialty Unit Network is, was particularly set up to deal with environmental concerns and questions from uh, clinicians so uh, feel free to use it. Great, thank you, Dr. Newman, for answering all of my questions today and, and teaching us so much about lead. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a, a lot of fun. Have a great day.